Paul wants the believers to put their money where their mouth is and do good things, live as true followers of Jesus Christ. But to his mind, how is that going to happen? That's the question. It is the insistence on the gospel that will lead to the good works. It might sound counterintuitive, but Paul's very, very clear about it. Why is this so? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller and glad that you're with us as today we get to the last message in our series, Transformed by Truth. And uh, Jonathan, as we think about what we just heard there, you're saying it is the understanding, the proper understanding of the gospel that leads to good works. Why is that the case? Well, the Bible would tell us that actually on our own, we're incapable of doing good works. Um, we're so inclined to selfishness and, and to sin. Our hearts are, are corrupted by sin, the Bible tells us. And in order to do good, we need the help of God. Ultimately, we need the transformation of the gospel. And so when the Bible speaks about good works and teaches us good works, it does so on the basis of a heart transformation that only God can do by His Spirit. That's where it all begins. Well, we're going to look at this uh, a little bit more from the book of Titus today. We're in chapter 3, looking at verses 8 to 15 as we continue our series Transformed by Truth with a message called Devoted to Good Works. Here is Jonathan. Throughout Titus, Paul has been driving home for us this unbreakable link between sound doctrine and sound living. If there's one lesson he wants us to learn from this letter, this epistle, it is the vitality of this particular connection. If we believe sound doctrine, we must be committed to sound living. If we would live the right way, we must believe the right things. Now, given how clear Paul has been about these things throughout Titus, it's, it's no surprise, really, that this is where he now lands the plane, that this is where he closes the letter. He wants Titus to ensure that the believers at Crete will be grounded in gospel essentials so that they will be devoted to good works. And he wants them within all that to avoid all foolish controversy, all unhelpful teaching that will in any way draw them away from the centrality of gospel truth. Although the controversies and the distractions before us today are different from those facing the Christians at Crete 2,000 years ago, the principles remain just the same. And our great need today to focus on gospel essentials and to uphold this unity of sound doctrine and sound living, it remains completely unchanged. This is a very contemporary word. In fact, we might say that this need is more urgent than ever. We are today in the West surrounded by the tombstones of churches and denominations that have failed to uphold gospel essentials over time. That is largely the story of mainline denominations around us. That's why historic church buildings are constantly being sold for redevelopment throughout our communities. And the church that remains, the evangelical church that endures, it is more riven by controversy and conflict than perhaps at any time. We live in an age of acute distraction and deep division. And Paul's closing words to Titus, they echo down the centuries as a timely, even a prophetic warning and admonition for us. And we want to listen carefully to what he has to say to the church in any age and in our age. Paul's first admonition is this, the church must insist 
on gospel essentials, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Now, this is pretty strong language that Paul is using here. He is telling Titus not simply to, you know, bear something in mind, not simply to make it part of the round of his teaching ministry at Crete. No, he wants Titus to insist on some things which Paul insists and affirms are trustworthy. Now, at this point, of course, we have to ask the basic question, what are the trustworthy things that Paul is talking about here? Paul actually uses this same language a number of times throughout the epistles, the pastoral epistles. A number of times he refers to something as being a trustworthy saying. And if we took time, we won't do it now, but if we took time to analyze the various passages where he does that, we would discover that Paul's Trustworthy sayings are always concise summaries of the essential elements of the gospel, which he has tailored in each context to fit the particular situation he is writing into. And here, sure enough, we see that Paul has just given us a very concise, clear, and powerful summary of the gospel. We spent time on that last time, but just notice it again with me, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the promise of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. The trustworthy saying here is the gospel summary that Paul has just given. God's goodness and his loving kindness appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. He saved us by his mercy through his death on the cross. He washed us. He renewed us by the Holy Spirit. He justifies us as we trust in him. He declares us not guilty, and he makes us heirs of the hope even of eternal life. And Paul says, this gospel, it is trustworthy, and it is true. And, and Titus, as you now minister to the believers at Crete, I want you to major on this theme, on this truth. I want you to be insistent about it. I want you to say it, and I want you to say it again, and I want you not to allow it to be changed or modified or sidelined or silenced, insist on these things, these basic gospel realities. Now, I think it's fair to say if we analyze history that most churches, most denominations, most missions agencies, most Christian organizations start with the gospel. I think that's generally true. It's not always true. Sometimes the foundation, it's bad right from the start when we look back, but most do. After all, you're only going to go to all the trouble of establishing a church or a missions group or some other organization under the banner of the name of Christ if your heart has been actually gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've been transformed by grace. You're only going to pour in time and money and prayer if you've had that real encounter with Jesus at the cross. Trace back the history of most churches, missions works, parachurch organizations, and you will find stories of true gospel transformation of real conversion of saving grace. But the sobering thing to observe is how quickly things can drift. And we could spend the next hour, we could spend the next week analyzing the history of drift 
within the church. And you and I, if we're familiar with the wider Christian world, we can name denomination after denomination, agency after agency, where there's been drift away from gospel moorings, away from the very convictions and emphases that Paul lays out here in chapter 3, our initial slavery to sin. We need to be clear about that. Verse 3, the goodness and loving kindness of God in Jesus. Salvation not by works, regeneration by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, justification by faith and through grace, the hope of eternal life beyond this world. And what happens in that drift? I think if we analyze the history, what happens is something very subtle, actually. Rarely do you find a leader or a church that goes from affirming those things one day to denying them the next day. That's not generally what takes place. Normally, what happens in the church is, is something like this. The church leader or organization stops emphasizing these things and starts to emphasize other things, either through distorted teaching or by sheer distraction because something becomes pressing. There is a new cause to champion or a new debate in which to engage. At the early stages of this, it would be unlikely to see an outright denial of the gospel, but what will happen is that a new theological idea will be emphasized or a new cause, maybe a social concern, maybe a justice issue. It'll take the limelight and seem very, very pressing. It will become the main focus of what's going on. And over time, the basics of the gospel, sin and judgment, salvation through Jesus, the cross and justification, new life in the Spirit, the hope of heaven, these things won't be denied outright for some time, although ultimately they probably will be. They will just be de-emphasized in favor of something else. Paul sees the danger in Crete with the ungodly false teachers infiltrating the church. And what does he say to Titus? Here are the essentials of the gospel. I want you to insist on these things. Insist on them, Titus. Be like a broken record about them. Emphasize them. Make them your main theme and your central passion. To borrow a well-worn phrase, keep the main thing the main thing. Now, for us as a church, I think this is just such a timely reminder. There is so much to talk about, isn't there? There's so much to do. There are so many issues we could tackle, so many discussions we could have. But we need to be insistent. We need to be doggedly insistent on gospel basics in everything we do. I need to make sure in the preaching of the Word that the basic gospel realities of sin and salvation, of God's mercy in Jesus, of life by the Spirit, of the hope of heaven, I need to make sure that these realities come through all the time in our children's work and our youth work and our young adults' ministry and women's groups and men's groups and community groups and outreach activities. We need to be doggedly insistent on gospel basics all the time. We mustn't fear sounding like a broken record. And it's so wonderful, actually, to see what happens when we insist on the basics and major on the gospel. I observe this personally with preaching. Sometimes I'll give a message that part of me feels, you know, is just a little bit basic. You know, it's a simple message of the, the cross, a, a clear-cut gospel presentation, perhaps an appeal, nothing new 
nothing fancy, just the gospel, and almost without exception on such an occasion when I come up thinking this is going to be a basic message, almost without exception, one of the saints from within the church family, often one of the older, more established saints will come to me or will write to me and say something along these lines. You know, that was just the thing I needed to hear. It did me such good to hear the gospel, to hear that message. It ministered to me. And and the fact is, I know this particular saint knew every single word of truth that I said in that message and had known it for decades. There was nothing innovative. There was nothing new there. There was nothing very surprising. But the wonderful truth is this. The saints are nourished and sustained by the same message that once saved them. You and I, however long we have been Christians, we never outgrow the gospel, do we? We never grow tired of the gospel if we've really been gripped by it. We never stop needing to hear the gospel. But this question of emphasis is so important. What is it that really, at the end of the day, fires us, drives us, captivates our interest? What is the dominant theme of the pulpit? of our various teaching ministries and small groups. What is it that we long to hear and long to say? Is it first and foremost gospel essentials or is it something else? You see, it's so easy for us to, over time, assume the gospel and go on to emphasize other things because, well, everyone here knows the gospel. Oh yes, we all understand and believe the gospel, so now, now we're going to throw ourselves into some form of social action to, or to meeting the latest cultural challenge, to fighting the latest justice battle. And after a few years of doing that, the gospel is assumed but no longer proclaimed. And after a few years of assuming the gospel but not proclaiming it, the gospel is modified, sidelined, ultimately forgotten or denied. And the history of the church, of denominations, of missions, agencies, of parachurch organizations, it bears out that story again and again and again in many places, of course, not everywhere. The saying is trustworthy. The gospel saying, I want you to insist on these things. May God give us grace to insist on them too. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called Devoted to Good Works. It's the last message in our series called Transformed by Truth. And if you've missed any of the broadcasts in the series, you can always come to our website and you can listen online. The website address, EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. It's new and it's free, and you'll find it at your favorite app store. Just simply look for Encounter the Truth when you're there, and that's a great way to listen to Jonathan's teaching on the go. But whether you listen through the app, the website, or on the radio, it's all made possible because of your generosity. So thanks for giving and supporting Encounter the Truth. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Through Gates of Splendor. It's written by Elizabeth Elliott, powerful book, and it's our way of saying thanks for your support this month. And I hope you'll stay tuned. Jonathan will be along a little bit later to tell you more about this book. But if you want to find out more right now, you can do that by coming to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. All right, let's get back to the message. Here is Jonathan. Church must insist on gospel essentials, says Paul, so that we will be devoted to good works. Verse 8 again. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, I think that is very, very fascinating, that flow of logic there. Following the train of Paul's spirit-led logic is so instructive for us. It's just so insightful. Consider again how drift happens in the church. We believe the gospel, we understand the gospel, but there is this pressing issue before us, a social need, a justice cause, something the government's doing that we're concerned about, whatever it is. We, we run after the cause. We run after the issue hard. This is the work now we feel that God has called us to do, and we start talking about the issue, the cause, the whole time. And before long, our passion, our interest is the issue, whatever it is, our message is the issue. Our work is the issue. That's what we're about. And of course, eventually, over time, the energy just fades out of that kind of thing. Eventually, it just sort of fizzles because the issue disappears or we get tired. Now, we need to remember that Paul is very interested in good works. He wants the believers to put their money where their mouth is and do good things live as true followers of Jesus Christ, but to his mind, how is that going to happen? That's the question. Notice the logic. Very interesting. Insist on these things. Insist on gospel basics so that the people of God will be devoted to good works. It is the insistence on the gospel that will lead to the good works. Isn't that interesting? It might sound counterintuitive, but Paul's very, very clear about it. Why is this so? Well, that insight and the flow of that logic, it takes us to some very, very basic Bible realities. Remember the big picture of humanity's situation and humanity's needs. As a fallen race, as a sinful people, our hearts are corrupted. And we are incapable of doing good on our own. That's the human condition in sin, in rebellion against God. That is the testimony of Scripture. It is the story of human history. It goes right back to the earliest days of human history after Adam and Eve's rebellion. In Genesis 6, right before God sent that devastating flood upon the earth, we read this. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a verdict. What a statement. In Romans 3, quoting from a whole slew of Old Testament references, Paul makes the same point very, very forcefully. Romans 3 and verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In our natural state, the Bible tells us, we are not capable of doing good. Of course, God in His grace, He limits the evil of society and He enables some measure of good deeds even by those who do not know Him. That's what theologians call common grace and it's a wonderful thing. But to truly do the good that God calls us to do as His people, it takes His intervention, it takes His saving grace, it takes His empowerment by His Spirit. It is a supernatural work. Or to put it all another way, it takes the gospel. It takes the gospel. Now, if you and I, if we are concerned about good works, 
concerned about creating a countercultural community that will live differently and impact society in a beautiful and a grace-filled way, if we care about that, as I hope we do, I really hope we care about that, what is the strategy that we should then follow as a church? Major on social action, on justice issues, on good deeds is our main emphasis. No, not in the first instance, surprising as that may seem. Preaching good works is a dead-end street because the human heart is not actually capable of good works on its own in sin. No, the way to get transformed lives, the way to get to good works, to godly living, it is by insisting on gospel basics. It is by the proclamation of the truth. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We have some folk in the church who have been very concerned about the, the availability of clean and safe water in some communities in Africa where they have a, a particular connection. Many in the church family will know about this very good initiative. Now, if a community is in need of good drinking water, there are essentially two ways, I think, to attempt to address the problem. One is to supply by delivery quantities of bottled water and and, you know, you, you drop off big pallet loads of plastic water bottles at intervals and hope that one delivery tides the community over to the next. It's something, but it obviously doesn't solve the problem in a sustainable way. And if deliveries get disrupted, you know, the plan, it breaks down. The other approach is to go in and dig a well, as our friends do. Get the heavy equipment in there address the root issue, secure a life-giving supply, and the community is now equipped to flourish and, and, and to live and to grow. When it comes to transformed lives, to godly living, to doing good works, God's strategy in a dry and barren land on the landscape of this world, God's strategy is to address the fundamental issue of the heart. His strategy is the gospel. That's where the well of living water is to be found. It's not a, a patchwork or a piecemeal solution. It transforms us from within, and it gives us the resources to begin to live in a new kind of way. Notice the language that Paul uses here in his gospel summary in verse 5. He speaks of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's where change comes from. That's how life transformation comes about. This is the life-giving well. It is the gospel. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and a message called Devoted to Good Works, the last message in our series, Transformed by Truth. And if you missed any of the broadcasts in our series, you can come and listen online. Just stop by EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We're able to stay on the station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you, as our way of saying thanks, a book entitled through Gates of Splendor. And Jonathan, that's an interesting title. What's the book about? Well, it's a very wonderful story, a sad story, but also a triumphant and joyful story about the martyrdom 
of five young missionaries in the 1950s, American missionaries in Ecuador, who sought to reach a particular tribe that were an unreached people group with the good news of Jesus Christ. And they they went and sought to build bridges with this particular group, longing to serve them by by telling them the good news of Jesus. Uh, But these five young men uh, were killed in this attempt. And through Gates of Splendor is the story of of this tragedy told from the perspective of the young wife of one of the the men, Jim Elliott, who was killed. And it, it tells a story of loss, but of hope and of the precious value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a very inspiring story. Many people have been inspired to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in sacrificial ways through this story. And I trust that it will bring great encouragement to you as you read it. Well, we want to send you a copy of this book, Through Gates of Splendor, as our way of saying thanks for your support this month. You can give a gift online by coming to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or you can call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.